0: I'm Marcus Peter Rempel.
1: And I'm Alana Lewandowski.
0: Welcome to The Furman.
1: Something good is rising.
0: Today we are uh, deeply honored and very excited to uh, have as a guest Stan McKay, who is uh, a Cree elder in Manitoba. He, uh, sometimes I, I think of him as uh, our own Bishop Tutu. Uh, he's a Cree man, the name given to him in the lodge is is Walking Buffalo, and uh, he's someone who is uh, widely respected in the indigenous community and well beyond as a, as a very significant elder and leader and, and holder of knowledge and teachings, and he's someone who's uh, been significantly involved in the church. His history is with the United Church, and uh, in the 90s, uh, for a time, he actually held the uh, the highest position in the land, he was national moderator for the United Church of Canada. I happen to know him through uh, the Sandy Soto Spiritual Center where I work, which is uh, indigenous-led resource center and uh, and teaching place and cross-cultural learning center. Just a few twists of the Brokenhead River downstream from where I live at Plowshares Community Farm. So I've I've gardened with Stan. I've uh, I've sat in circle in in teachings with Stan and been in the sweat lodge with Stan and uh, yeah, just. Very delighted to be sharing him with with our audience at the ferment. And um, Alana, we we were thinking about what kind of music uh, to attach to this particular episode. And there's there's a song that is in Alana's repertoire that is um, it's very very apt. It's speaking directly into the residential school uh, experience of which uh, Stan is a survivor. I just invite you, Alana, to say a, something about how how it is that uh, you as a white settler person uh, came to be uh, writing and and sharing such a song?
1: Um, I have to tell a little bit of my backstory so that I can kind of give context for this song. Uh, I grew up as the biological child of foster parents, you know, in Canada. And so I grew up uh, in this strange sort of dichotomy where I was not segregated from indigenous community, but was uh, connected through a very painful, a, a painful way, which was through uh, the child and family welfare services um, scene. And, and so I'm very familiar. I have a kind of a strange perspective of looking at uh, at that story, and you know, growing up, and then really learning uh, more and more about the residential school story, and also knowing uh, children whose parents were deeply affected by that, and therefore they were deeply affected by that, and then um, learning more about the '60s scoop, and then learning more and more about our own uh Canada's own sort of Jim Crow methods and the the imbalance in our uh, prison system and so on so I I I grew I grew up in this this uh with this interesting perspective and then ended up uh, moving to Winnipeg and as I was songwriting and Performing, I also worked for agencies, and I worked in group homes, and uh, worked in the north end of Winnipeg, and in foster homes, and uh, for years, uh, I did that. So I had I had this sort of connection for a long time, and um, this song, I I wrote it a long time ago now, about fifteen years ago, with a fellow from the United States. And what we did was we sat in an in a sort of interview process where it was sort of like a method songwriting. I became the grandmother that's in the song, and then I became the granddaughter. And he asked me questions. And um, looking back on it, now I would never have written that song because I don't feel it's my story to tell. But I'm also grateful that I was naive enough <laughs> hmm. to, um, to go there 15 years ago. And then um, through a very, very precious moment in time in Alberta, I was asked to play the song for a group of elders. And it was a very uh, kind of emotional time for me to play the song and for it to be received. And it was received very well. Mm. And through that um, give, through that uh, receiving, um, I was connected with uh, a woman from Churchill originally, a Cree woman named Phyllis Sinclair, and we ended up recording the song not that long ago. Um, and she plays, she performs as the grandmother, mm. and I perform as the granddaughter, and. When we posted the song on on my Patreon, the proceeds of that went to an organization in Alberta called Indigenous Birth of Alberta, which is a midwifery and doula organization Mm -hmm. that's indigenous-led. And I felt it was the most appropriate place for any, any fruits from that song. To go because of my experience in um, witnessing mothers who had been broken,
2: Mm.
1: and um, and knowing now how if you if if you want to control a people you control their food and their children. Yeah. And um, so so that's kind of the context of that of that song, (laughs) and it was uh, it's I'm very excited to be speaking with Stan today.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing interview. It's um, I think the thing that's uh, ringing in my ears is uh, Stan talking about how racism in Canada is particularly difficult um, because much of it comes from people who are being nice to you while <laughs> while they're destroying you. Um, th- that's uh, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that for quite a while. Um,
1: yeah, like you see, you see this uh, these memes and stuff of how if everyone moves to Canada, they'll be sorry. You know this this idea that uh, <laughs> you know Canadians are so apologetic and and uh, you know we can be there there can be a lot cloaked within that within that passivity. Yeah, and <laughs> that, cloaked from uh, ourselves,
0: it's, hidden from ourselves, yeah, which from is I think the the most some of the the most difficult challenge
1: yeah it's the shadow it's a shadow
0: yeah um so just one more thing about the san mckay conversation he uh inadvertently or uh or perhaps serendipitously uh kind of reversed our habit of uh, blessing our guest i think he he misunderstood maybe when we were priming him for that moment and uh and he just launched beautifully into uh, his role as, a, as an elder and blessed us much of it in Cree, uh, which I just love that so much. I, I'm sure God understands prayers in English, <laughs> but um, it, it feels to me uh, that when prayers rise up from this place in, in Cree, that there's a, a special power. And a, a special joy for the creator in in receiving those, so uh, so that's what happened there at the end. And uh, so we thank Stan for his blessing, and maybe someday we'll we'll share the blessing we had for him. But uh, just just one more beautiful surprise out of Stan McKay walking buffalo that you can look forward to in this interview. So here we go, dancing with our shadows, and uh, <laughs> and hearing from an elder, some truth and light. Tansi Mishumis.
3: Oh, Monanto.
0: Ah, uh, nice. It's, yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, it's,
0: it's so nice to hear your voice, Stan.
3: Oh, well, it's, it's good to, uh, to be connected.
1: Good morning, Stan.
3: Good morning, Alana.
1: So, I guess to start off with, uh, I'd just like to ask uh, where are you touching the earth today?
3: I'm uh, on the banks of the Netley Creek, uh, just a few minutes north of Selkirk, in, uh, in a little village called Petersfield, where we live.
0: Um, well, thank you again, Stan, uh, so much for speaking with us. One thing about this way of connecting is I, I, we can't hand you our tobacco <laughs> through, the, uh, through the telephone lines. Um, hmm. But we are, we are sincerely grateful for your uh, sharing time with us this morning. Um, I understand, I think I have this right, Stan, that the, the name that you were given in the lodge is Walking Buffalo. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And I've, I've heard you say that this is a name that it, it ties you to a way of life that is past. And I've, I've heard you say that you're, you're old enough to remember when life was simple. And, uh, and I also know that you're someone who continues to dream and think far ahead. So maybe the first invitation would be just what are some of the the memories and the dreams of Walking Buffalo that we should record while we still have him walking among us?
3: Uh, well, I, I think what my uh, spirit name reminds me of uh, daily is that uh, life is, uh, is very vulnerable to... Uh, to what happens in the in the environment around it and uh, hmm. and around us and our relationship to each other as humans our relationship to uh, to all other life on the planet uh, needs to be cared for and protected so i i have a deep sense of uh, what i've heard in a lodge of uh, of our role as being keepers of the earth keepers of life in a good way and i think that uh, I grew up in a in a situation where uh, that was a natural thing mm. and I've often said that the uh, primary lesson I believe that the my father and mother uh, left with me was you only take what you need
4: mm.
3: and of what you have you must share mm. and that is how life is, is sustained uh, in community and in the natural uh, balance of nature so so I uh, I grew up knowing that as a little child, and uh, only in recent years I've come to realize how uh, how important that learning is, uh, especially as we think about the decline in uh, in life on the planet, the number mm. of species that are mm. no longer here, and uh, certainly the buffalo are very much on the on the edge of the uh, of prosperity in terms of uh, of future life uh, on the planet.
2: Mm. Hmm
1: stan Stan, you you come from a people who take uh, sometimes a whole week to tell one story, and we have such a short time with you, and we want so many stories from you. Mm-hmm. Um I am very I was very moved uh, the that first time I heard you tell the story about Luke and Mary mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I had a uh, quite a major epiphany it, about my own culture and how I see the world when I heard you tell it in the way that you told it. It was very humbling and I really will carry it with me always. I would I would love for you to tell that story of uh, how how Luke and Mary made it in Winnipeg
3: hmm. <laughs> Yeah and, and uh, these were people who were friends of my father when we, when we moved to Winnipeg as a family. Uh, they were also people who moved to the city. And I, I tell the story uh, uh, of Luke and Mary because, for me, it is an example of, uh, of the cost, the compromises that must be made at times to, uh, to survive in an urban context or in, a, in, in the world as, as it is uh, governed. Anyway, Luke was a, a man from the Island Lake area of Manitoba. Uh, he grew, grew up in that community and then came out to residential school in Winnipeg. He was in a Catholic school, and uh, after graduation or during his final years in high school, he had an opportunity to learn uh, cabinetry, uh, carpentry, and uh, he was very skilled, very able, and founded a uh, a job and at, at graduation from residential school in Winnipeg he found work with a cabinet maker and uh, with a company and he was employed and, and enjoyed the work but he had a friend at home and she uh, and he had had plans and so he returned home to be married left his work and went home to his village uh, they were married they had two daughters uh, early on in their marriage and, and he uh, had hoped he would be able to lose, use his carpentry skills in, in his community, but there really wasn't any constant work, any regular work for him. And he wanted uh, to have that opportunity. So they met as a family and decided, he and his partner decided they would move to Winnipeg. So Luke and Mary made arrangements, and he came a bit early and found a, a two-bedroom apartment where he and Mary could live. With their two daughters and they they got settled in um, and he uh, was hired back on with the company he had worked with before. And so things were were well set, well well directed, and uh, they were making this attempt. After two or three months, uh, Mary, who spoke very little English, was lonesome at home all day with two preschool children uh, and very little contact with anyone else. In the, in the in the community, uh, basically in the apartment all the time. And, uh, and uh, she asked mm. Luke one evening if they could have her uh, favorite aunt and uncle uh, come for a visit, uh, if they could send them money for airfare. And so they did that, and they came and they lived with Luke and Mary for a time. And that made it much easier for Mary to have that connection and support. Mm. Uh, then Luke's uh, cousin became ill, and, uh, and he had to come out, and he came with his wife, and they also moved in with Luke and Mary into their mm. little apartment, and now there were uh, four adults and two children in a two-bedroom apartment, and uh, that went on for a little while now before the landlord became uh, uh, concerned, and then mm. said they could not uh, continue to be crowded mm. into this little, little apartment, and uh, he would have to have them move. So they uh, were under some pressure and Luke found an older home in North Winnipeg where all of them could live and so they moved to a uh, much uh, less uh, hospitable space but a place they could afford and they moved in and they lived there and uh, then the the pressure started to mount. Uh, They paid their rent and uh, the food costs and so on were were rising and uh, and they finally determined they could not succeed. They could not uh, survive in, in uh, an urban setting with, with one salary for, uh, for six adults and, uh, and two children. So Luke and Mary moved back north. They were there for a few years, three or four, and, uh, and their children were in school, and Luke determined that this wasn't going to be good for his family. So he came away again to Winnipeg, and Luke found a little house along the Assiniboine uh, River, uh, just west of Winnipeg towards Headingley. And along the river, uh, he found this little place where he thought his family could, could live comfortably. So he uh, arranged for them to come and join him. He bought an older car that he could get to work in, and they lived in this little house they had an unlisted phone number. They would not um, be able mm. to be in touch with any family or uh, any community. They would be isolated, and somehow they would survive and, and succeed as, as a family. Um, the story is that uh, the two daughters did have education, uh, have been successful as, as, as young women in, in, in their growing and uh, development, but the cost of, uh, of making it, as my father used to say, that the price of making it in the in the wider society is uh, is so high and uh, the compromise is so great that I think it uh, it actually, in many ways, I believe, shortened the lives of of Luke and Mary. They did not not live very long. Their health wasn't good as they as they were aging, and uh, and they're both deceased. So uh, hmm. I think the pressures of uh, of adapting to a uh, to the dominant society and the value systems, uh, makes it very difficult for indigenous, for us to find a way to be human in this society.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: And could you maybe just to fill out the contrast of uh, that picture to the traditional economy and traditional ways of, uh, I mean, you used the word, you know, you talked about Luke having work, which was, you know, what Luke had was this monetized career, which the rest of the family didn't. But can you just sort of tell our listeners how uh, a family like that would have shared work, would have shared space in the traditional Cree economy?
3: Well, I, I would know from my experience, having visited the Idle Lake area and remembering my own childhood, that life on the land was, uh, was times of very hard work collaborative work within the extended family where people spent the winter at the winter camp on the trap line fishing and hunting uh, trapping and making a living on the land the women were very very busy uh, maintaining the cabin for for their family and they would always have uh, relatives living in the same winter camp so there was always support always uh, a group of women a group of men working together as an uh, extended family, and, and as I say, working very hard. And then after that season was over, they'd have some time f- for visiting, for feasting, for uh, hmm. uh, relaxing, and, and there they would be cycles of that, of that busyness, of, of, of productive uh, life and, and productive community. Um, so the economy, uh, the economic piece of it was, was really uh, uh, maintaining each other's life. Uh, Caring for each other and, uh, and being self-sufficient, sharing in, in the dignity of life on the land. I think that was radically changed by uh, compulsory education. Uh, wow. So Luke and Mary were impacted, would be the first generation to be impacted by, by the imposition of government laws that would uh, require children to be in school. So, when Luke was taken away to residential school, Mary would have been attending a day school in in the community um, but he would have had more education than she. but the education was not about life on the land; it was about living life in the in a society where where, where ag- ag- aggressive aggressive uh, patterns of of life would uh, uh, would give you uh, monetary uh, returns. Mm. <laughs> so I think that's the, that's the main contrast, that you sort of uh, work to live. You, 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 li- you worked as much as you needed to to get what you needed to live on the land in a good way, but you did not uh, uh, have the pressures of having to uh, develop uh, uh, long-term economic goals uh, in terms of uh, savings and uh, retirement plans. The intergenerational uh, process was one of uh, of sustaining community hmm. and, and caring for the elders and caring for the children uh, collaboratively. So when when Luke and Mary moved to the little house along the Assiniboine towards Heading Lake in the outskirts of Winnipeg, um, again, he had some advantage in that he, uh, I know that he did some trapping along the Assiniboine he continued mm. to do some of the traditional things, but mm. there was very little that Mary could do that would yeah, yeah. be her, in terms of her place as, as a woman in community. Uh, she, she gave up very much.
0: Hmm. When you talk about that sense of subsistence uh, in community and, and uh, taking only what one needs, I'm remembering uh, a story you told once. I, he- I heard you tell a story about uh, an elder who dropped his steel traps in the lake um, and, uh, I believe it was an illustration of, uh, a prayer phrase that I've, I've heard you, uh, pray many times, Sawanimanan, uh, which, uh, yeah, I wonder if you could give us the, that, tra- the translation of that and that story as well.
3: Well, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, as you mentioned that, Marcus, that, that the stories for me are very much connected because the mm. story I tell of the, uh, of the trapper in Pimpanape in what has been called Oxford house, again it's the story of of extended family having summer home by the lake and winter homes back into the woodlands and a uh, trapping hunting area that that the, the story is that uh, a trapper had had a good season, one of the leading uh, people in the in the extended family who did much of the trading with the with the fur buyer. Uh, came back to the village after a winter of trapping, with with many furs, very good quality furs, and uh, the fur buyer uh, suggested that uh, that he buy some new uh, technology. There was a, n- a new trap that had been developed steel trap that would in- enhance his uh, production on the land, and and said that uh, he would sell him some. So the uh, the trapper bought uh, a number of traps. I think twenty, as the story was told, huh. and and went uh, the next year with his his new technology into the into the the winter camp uh, to trap, and again had a very successful. had had many many furs and uh, was much more successful than he had been on the on the land in terms of of getting animals. But he realized at the end of that uh, that winter a trapping season that he was really taking too many. He, he had huh. he had more than he needed. Huh. He did take them and, and sell them, but he, then he uh, uh, after he got home, he paddled out into the lake and he put half of his traps into a bag. And as he got towards the middle of the lake, he placed the bag into the water, let it sink into the water and offered some tobacco as a sign of thanksgiving and uh, that he only needed half of them and, uh, and that would be uh, sufficient for his life and would be good for the land uh, mm. and the animals if he was to control his, uh, his, his number of, of furs and, and only take what was necessary. I think that teaches the philosophy of, uh, of life and, uh, and again the, the background of that story uh, is, is that uh, when the school was built in that village the Indian agent required the children to be in school 10 months of the year huh. in the local Indian day school. And uh, what it meant in the wintertime is when the extended family would normally go out onto the trap line to their winter camp. The women and children had to stay behind in the village while the men went trapping uh-huh. and hunting. And and the, the, uh, the homes in the village uh, where the school was built on the reservation were not really adequate for winter life they were really summer homes and uh, Mm. and so they were difficult to heat Mm. it now meant the trappers had to uh, try and bring food and fuel back to the homes in the winter time they'd be back and forth Mm. from their trap lines Uh, there was no one on the trap line to prepare food for them or Mm. to keep the 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 home Uh, Mm. and help prepare the furs so the economy was was radically uh, altered and, and, it, and in a short time uh, basically collapsed um, huh. because the family unit had been broken by this intention of, of, of government to make education compulsory and, and to do it in a, in a way that uh, disrupted uh, family, community life and the economy of, of living in balance and self-sufficiency on the land.
2: Huh.
3: So, so that... You know, leads us into a situation that is now massive uh, mm. in canada and uh, and the the immorality of of that kind of imposition on on our on our communities on our lives mm. now means there are so many thousands of indigenous peoples who have been made dependent have been brought into poverty mm. and uh, and there is so little dignity left when when you take away the self-sufficiency and the the relationship to the land that, that people have have nurtured over over many generations. So, so I think we're in a very difficult time, and and there are days when I wonder whether there's anything in in a Western economy that can ever bring a solution. Because uh, uh, hmm. when, when you when you begin to break the spirits of the people uh, by this kind of imposition, uh, it's difficult to recover. Uh, and so I think we have in in so many urban centers in, in the country, indigenous peoples who, uh, who no, no longer feel any, uh, any sense of, uh, of purpose or, uh, mm. or confidence in, in, our, in our abilities to, uh, to make life for us and our families.
1: What I heard, Stan, about that you were speaking of the land too, I, I uh, what came to me as you were saying that was also uh, the connection to your children um, I I heard uh, Gabor Mate. I think that's how you say his name. He mm-hmm. wrote a book called "Hold On to Your Children." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I heard a story. This was a story of an of an African, just sort of painting an illustration of an African tribe, and how uh, children were carried so much uh, in their early years uh, mm. as mothers worked and uh, as uh, they were also because they were on the land. They were um, basically, if you were to set your child down for too long, predators <laughs> would show up, mm-hmm. and and the development that happens between parent and child when they're connected like that. And so, uh, uh, what I grieve when I hear you speaking is certainly the loss of connection to land but also that built-in connection with children that was that was forced as this better way
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: yes I, I, I think the uh, the losses and the uh, crisis you know ecological crisis we live with in the world these days uh, has not reflected uh, much on what what experience there is in indigenous communities and I think your mention of Africa is, is very significant. I think there are, there's a global reality of, uh, of the distancing of humans from, from the environment, of somehow separating us from, uh, from our mother the earth in a way that uh, we can no longer be uh, very human. Our very humanity is, uh, is weakened by our, uh, our separation. From. from our context and our, uh, our relatives uh in terms of immediate family but also in terms of uh, extended family um the whole of creation uh, which i think maintains so much of what is is good about being human um the qualities that potential huh. <laughs> that is in us and and, and when you speak of, of infants uh, you know, again, a, a teaching that I have lived with and I, I continue to, to try to encourage is that uh, we are meant to be in community. We are meant to be involved intergenerationally.
2: Hmm. The,
3: the very idea of, of individual rights without consideration of, of community rights is difficulty. difficulty uh, I think we face. And I'm really happy that uh, three years ago, the uh, TRC came up with some calls to action, and really framed them around the, uh, the rights of indigenous peoples. The the S on the end of that that word is is I think crucial to our uh, hmm.
4: uh,
3: as indigenous people certainly finding our ways together into community. Um, so I'm you know I think it's it's very much a difficult struggle as as both of you would know uh, to do things communally or do things. Uh, in community, we're so programmed to uh, to launch out as rugged individuals hmm. Hmm. and, uh, and uh, confront everything with aggression, uh, including the uh, the natural order uh, hmm. of life.
1: Stan, you have a a story about the way radio in remote indigenous communities helped the indigenous church to find its own voice. And eventually uh, to insist on its own way of mm. doing things for Marcus and I that as you know podcasters <laughs> you know trying to ferment this revolution of love, you know Marcus is out in his boonies, I'm out in my boonies um, we're talking on the phone and not face to face right now because of our commitment to the land, <laughs> basically um. That's kind of a story we'd like to hear.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that brings to mind a couple of stories. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate uh, to have lived uh, some years in, uh, in northern Manitoba, and, and uh, particularly in Norway House. And, and when I first moved there to work in the 70s, I'd been there in the 60s uh, teaching school, but I moved back in the 70s to spend a block of time there. And during that time, one of the few things that I can remember that the that the church I was involved with, the United Church, and one of the few things they did that was was quite magnificent was they placed uh, two-way radio phones in uh, in many of the communities. So there was a network of about uh, fifteen, maybe twenty uh, radio phones placed in various villages in the north, and we used to have a. Uh, nine a.m. every morning, uh, check in with with each other across the north. So uh, you know, I would be talking with people uh, in Sandy Lake, Ontario. I'd be talking with uh, with elders in uh, Nelson House and so on. Out of, out of talking with them uh, from Norway House, and and that network was was quite a marvelous uh, linking of peoples who would speak about their communities, speak about the. Uh, um, the celebrations of life, speak about the tragedies, but just really connecting uh, across the north. You know, and this was in the in the early 70s. Uh, was quite a marvelous. Uh, these days, it's not a, not a big thing, but in those years, quite marvelous. And and almost all of the conversation was in our language. Um, most of the the conversation, and and they would open up. I, I remember especially. Uh, uh, Sunday afternoons, I think it's around uh, three o'clock or thereabouts. Sunday afternoons, it would be sort of an open uh, open time when people would just get together and uh, and, and share theological reflection and share stories huh. and teachings. And it was it was a magnificent uh, activity just to listen to uh, to hear the elders and to hear the from the people in the communities uh, speaking to each other. So that went on for a number of years, and uh, as I say, that now has been replaced by the modern technology that uh, that I'm not very familiar with. But uh, uh, you know, it. it um, I think the potential again is there for communication. But I want to follow that up with a brief story about uh, about living in Norway House in in the mid 70s. When we were in living in Norway House, initially there was. Uh, we only had a radio phone. There was no telephone connection to Norway House. Um, there were some access to radio signals on the radio, um, public radio, but but very little connection to the outside world. Then while we were living there in the 70s, the, uh, there came word that they were going to uh, put up a tower in Norway House and we'd have access to television. Mm. And, and And what happened then was that in a few months... The local stores, um, the, the lake was open and they were freighting stuff into the community by, by water. They brought in literally dozens and dozens of television sets before the, uh, the signal was even in, in activated. People were buying televisions, you know, very expensive investments for, for people in the, in the community. But many of them had them in their home. For weeks before the uh, the uh, signal ever was turned on. Well, the signal was was turned on. The, the reception of television happened. The only channel was uh, CBC in those those early years, <laughs> <laughs> one channel. And uh, and I go into homes. I was visiting homes uh, quite regularly, and I go into a home, and I see this circle of chairs
4: mm. in
3: the in the living room, uh, you know, kitchen chairs and so on. And, uh, lined up like a little theater uh, because not everyone was able to uh, afford uh, a television. Uh, people were gathering with their neighbors and, and watching for hours in the afternoon, evening and so on. Uh, so so the, the, the television just took over the life of the community. But I remember in December of that year when the signal was turned on, I think uh, sometime in October, I was into homes visiting in December leading up to the, the holiday period, I was visiting a lot of elders. And I'd go in, and where I used to go in to see the elders, the elders would be often in their bedrooms, uh, in the house, uh, with living with extended family. And there'd they'd often be grandchildren sitting with them on the bed, mm. visiting with them. Now, when I was going into the home, the elders would be alone. Mm. Alone, and the children would be learning English out in the living room on the television, uh, watching Big Bird uh, on CBC. <laughs> yeah. so, so it was, it, it, it was uh, I would say that in, in about two years, children growing up in Norway house, generally, who uh, always played in Cree, always working with their language, within two years, that had changed. The little children now, their first language now is English. And their connection with their elders was was basically gone uh, huh. in a matter of two years. So, so the the cultural uh, intrusion, the uh, the lack of thought about what impact this would have upon the community, on the part of local leaders, but also on the part of uh, those who would bring in uh, this kind of communication to the community without any preparation, I think was 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 quite a phenomenal thing. And I think similar things have happened, again, globally, I think, to peoples who were uniquely uh, culturally different, uh, had their own ways in various parts of the world, have met uh, this uh, impact of the imposition of, uh, of the culture. And, uh, and you go into those communities now, and uh, most of them have uh, capacity to bring in uh, 200 channels into the community, and most of them are watching Los Angeles or Detroit uh, news. And, yeah. You know, so, so the distance mm-hmm. between, uh, between life experience uh, just a generation ago and what's happening now is, uh, is quite a, a radical uh, change.
1: All right, halftime. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case, pass around the virtual collection
0: plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it but we also love our families.
1: The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good.
0: Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference.
1: Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist, And this preacher, it lets us chase the dream and not the dollar.
0: Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today.
1: Stan, Mark McDonald talks about the surprise that happens again and again wherever the gospel is used to colonize people. I know um, James Cone came up with... Liberation theology coined the term, um, and Mark McDonald notices how whenever the gospel is used to attempt to colonize people, there's like a Desmond Tutu who shows up, um, a Martin Luther King, a Black Elk, and even though you're not uh, you're not as well known or famous as these leaders, <laughs> I I think maybe because there hasn't been an attempt on your life <laughs> mm. in the way that uh, these other other folks have experienced um, but you you know we see you as kind of the same kind of leader who's grown up in the face of christian imperialism um, and then you surprise us with a more eloquent gospel witness from the margins um, than from its center and so um, what does it mean to you to be Cree and also to be Christian?
3: Well, it, it, uh, I think it's, a, it's a very, uh, sort of day by day existence. It's, it's confusing, um, my, my own awareness of, uh, of the impact of colonization on my life. Uh, you know, I, am continue to work at my own liberation in this process, uh, the years in residential school, the years in, in the Indian Day School, the presence of the church and my growing up uh, placed me, in a, in a point of captivity, and and I think, you know, my, my liberation has been very slow, and and it's difficult in Canada because the the racism and oppression uh, is often carried in love, you know, because uh-huh. even residential school, uh, many of the people who were on staff when I was in the residential school believed they were doing the right thing uh, and were loving mm. in, in some ways as, as they destroyed us. You know, the, mm. uh, the, the, the lack of the capacity to, uh, to see that we and our, our <laughs> traditions, our families, our, our knowledge keepers had anything to offer to the society and especially to the church was, was lacking. It, it's, and it's, it's still lacking. It's, it's uh, sort of, I think the struggle... Has only begun. Um, hmm. I'm spending more time now in my home village these days, and uh, and I'm encountering, you know, this this tremendous history of of, uh, of evangelism that has uh, caused us to to lose confidence in ourselves as a people. Hmm. It, it's 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 uh, it's a kind of racism that is uh, that is soul destroying. I think. Uh, hmm because it, it is good news and and we we understand it's good news, but it has no place for us in in the in the form in which it's delivered so I, you know I grew up in a village where where the ongoing uh, cycles of evangelism were about our our being evil and our uh, mm. worthlessness as indigenous peoples. Um, and that hasn't changed in many ways. That's still there. And uh, so I, I'm not sure what uh, what the options are. Um, I've been trying over the last two or three years to encourage, out of the truth and reconciliation process, ecumenical engagement. Because I think the one of the major, major pieces that the TRC does not address is that the churches not only brought us oppressive self-understanding, uh, Hmm. That, that we need to be liberated from, but, but the fact that it divided us as communities so that some of us became Anglican, some of us became Catholic, some of us became United hmm. Church, you know, that, that whole process is very devastating. It's, it's, wow. um, it cuts at the heart of, of how we see ourselves. And, and you know, when I lived in Norway House, the, the Anglican, Catholic, and United Churches were very separate, and, and had a long, long history of being competitive with each other, as mm. to see who would baptize the most children. Because baptism in those denominations is seen as the way that you become a member of the church as an infant. So literally, they, the stories are that people would race to the homes, they, they the priests and the ministers, mm. to be there to baptize, uh, at home births, so they'd be there to baptize uh, almost immediately at birth. A child into their their denomination, uh, and that's a very frightening and uh, oppressive way of of being in the church. Uh, and as I say, that's there's still elements of that around, and and the uh, the more recent evangelical engagements in our communities have been a further uh, decimation of our, uh, our our traditional spiritual values, a uh, further attacking. So. Uh, the cycle as i say is is not ended and uh, and what makes it more complex now uh, for me uh, as an indigenous person is that uh, many of the people who are now presenting the new evangelical uh, leadership are are my own cousins mm. my own relatives <laughs> you know my mm. sisters and uh, and brothers who uh, have taken on this theology mm. so so i uh, i have not found much comfort in liberation theology I hmm. find much more comfort in the liberation of theology,
1: <laughs>
3: which which is a, a small term, but I think a significant one. Because yep. as I have read, uh, certainly out of the uh, Latin American writings about liberation theology, I still sense there is a, an element in liberation theology of almost a willingness to move into into the existing order hmm. at the end of the day. You know, Mm. that that the economic resolution, uh, the economic injustice would somehow make everything right. (laughs) But I think it's far deeper than that. I think it's Mm. really about the fact that uh, certain value systems are really at the heart of Christianity. And many of those, I would say, uh, I hope with some humility, come from indigenous peoples. Yeah. The concept of shared life, Mm. caring for creation. Caring for each other is really at the heart of of, of gospel, and uh, and so I, I try to describe myself as an indigenous Christian, but that, that at times becomes very hard, especially the second part. Hmm. Uh, it's challenging, uh, very challenging.
2: Hmm.
0: I'm reminded uh, hearing you speak, especially about the race to baptize. Um, I was invited up by some uh, some folks to Saint Teresa Point this past summer. Uh, for an indigenous Catholic gathering, and uh it was Chris and Hazel Harper who are elders and and very significant leaders in in a movement in that community to uh reindigenize their faith mm-hmm. um and and I, I i was just very moved to be at the sacred fire and and seeing teenage fire keepers crossing themselves with the tobacco before offering the tobacco to the sacred fire and Mm -hmm. Uh, And to see, to see a cross with a white shawl in very close proximity to the Sundance poles and to, uh, to get to know the Sundance, uh, the keeper of the Sundance also as someone who, who plays the guitar and, and, and leads in the liturgy uh, of the, of the mass when he's invited to do so and to, to be in the, in the sweat lodge singing the Our Father, um, or uh, or to go on a on a merry walk through the community and uh, with with elders and children and and stop along the way to uh, because the children were thirsty to fan out into the bushes and to eat berries in what felt like a kind of sacramental moment that was all all of a piece and uh, I at one point I I said to to Kristen Hazel you know if if this is um, I I've been sort of homeless church-wise for for some years now. I'm I'm kind of a stray dog stealing scraps uh here and there and I I said to Chris and Hazel, you know, if if this is what indigenous catholicism is um uh sign me up, you know, baptize me. I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take the plunge. Mm.
4: Um
0: and uh and it was interesting to me that they they didn't uh they, they they didn't uh, race uh, to the lakeside with me <laughs> mm. uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> to baptize me, and I oh. think I think that that's at least in part. I think Chris and Hazel too have a sense. Uh, I mean, the, the Island Lake community, as I learned, really there's four separate First Nations that exist as mm-hmm. four separate mm-hmm. nations, almost entirely based on Christian sectarian conflicts. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think I think that Chris and Hazel are, are deeply aware of, of that division and don't want to perpetuate it and uh and so they, they weren't about to uh to put a a notch on their belt <laughs> mm. <laughs> even even with someone who was fairly eager to, to find some kind of identity to cling on to in, in what is I think a very confusing time. So thank thanks for being honest about that that confusion.
3: Mm. Yeah. I, and I think in the lodge, I, I have learned certainly that, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of proselytization of, uh, valuing, uh, some people over others, uh, mm. because of their history or, or of their connections, uh, is not part of the lodge. And, uh, and so I continue to go because I think it is a, a way for me as well to, to find home. Um, and, and why I think that, uh, uh, the liberation of theology is is where we go, because the the simple framework of, of Christian Christian history and missions, I think, needs to be approached differently in order to uh, to understand what, uh, what is, its impact has been upon upon peoples in, in the global global context. Uh, and and people used to joke in uh, in some ways about the way the the denominations determined in, in especially in Western Canada. To take certain territories you know that the church of england would have one area the catholic church would have another and the, the methodists would have another area uh territory in terms of uh, a swath of land across the west and uh, and that worked to an extent but uh, i think the the lines have been a little cloudy in, in most areas and and you know the the impact uh, is is really quite phenomenal i i was reading a census report from the mid fifties, I think around 56 uh, Canadian census, when before uh, sort of privacy and information concerns were were common, there was a, a record kept of of what denominations people belong to and the uh, the work of the churches was, was sort of categorized. Um, and 97% of indigenous uh, peoples had been baptized into a denomination ninety seven percent in uh, so so that the number of peoples who uh, who sort of avoided being marked by you know so I think that's uh, that's an important message as well about the impact and the aggression
0: mm.
3: of, of mission uh, within Canadian indigenous community I'm remembering
0: Stan that when I first met you, you were, the, uh, you were head of spiritual care at uh, Health Sciences Center. And I remember sitting in your office and there was a, a photograph above your desk of uh, a black and white photo of um, a gathering in, uh, in the woods somewhere of, of elders. And uh, it's, it seems that, that despite your having to go through the residential school experience and, and despite your, your significant involvement with the church. You maintained contact with your language uh, and maintained some contact with traditional ceremony and teachers that, that kept alive for you the, the sense of the dignity of uh, and the validity of indigenous ways. Tell us a, a bit about who, who, who those people were that, that kept alive for you that, that sense of uh, mm. the, the good way.
3: Yeah, uh, I think that uh, that is part of the journey. I, I would say, Marcus, that I went through uh, 15, maybe almost 20 years of of my life from the time I was a teenager until uh, I had spent some years working in the church before I really became critically aware of how important it was for me to to find that balance. Mm.
2: Uh,
3: I think I went a long time in... in in relative silence about about the injustice and the uh, power over us as a people by uh, by various authorities, and and I think in many ways I've I've come to understand that the spiritual uh, control is 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 likely the uh, the most dangerous mm-hmm. for yeah. us as a people. Yeah, yeah, and uh, both of you uh, from your experience on the land and uh, and struggling with uh, the values of. Remaining fully human in our lives is, is, a, is a great challenge. So, so I, I have determined that the language is, is, is crucial, mm. that, that being able to speak with the elders in our language uh, gives me an insight into philosophy of life, into self-understanding, into the seven sacred teachings that, mm. that really cannot be simply communicated in English. And as a young child, my father used to tell us uh, traditional stories, huh. and l- hearing them in Cree made us very aware early on that that you couldn't tell those stories in English. Huh. They they just wouldn't be the same. Um, and and so I think I I would love to be able to find a way now to to engage more of our of our children in in our community uh, with the use of our language. Um, huh. I think that may be one way that we will continue to to have some perception of uh, of our place as indigenous peoples uh, in in the in the wholeness of creation, and the expression "all my relations" uh, comes out of out of out of our language as a as a natural way, and I have discovered that many indigenous languages uh, use that expression. Huh. So kahino in wahu maganak. Uh, is a, is an expression of, of relatedness, of uh, of commitment to uh, to the the concept of community.
0: I'm curious, Stan, where in that process of coming out of silence and into critical awareness, where on that timeline does your decision to let your name stand for the national moderator position in the United Church of Canada, which is the really the highest position in mm. in that church?
3: Well, I had actually been approached to uh, allow my name to stand uh, for nomination to be moderator of the United Church. In uh, 1990, some friends had approached me uh, about placing my name on the ballot, and I had said then that I did not feel it was the time. Then about a year later there began to be uh, uh, some printed material resource materials around 1992 as being 500 years since uh, mm. yep. since the famous voyage yeah uh into our territories and uh, and then when the so when I was asked again about letting my name stand the fact that it was 1992 uh, had significant influence uh, influence in my uh, so so my uh, uh, approach to the process uh, of addressing the gatherings uh, of the church and, and indicating my interest was that uh, I stated that five hundred years was long enough,
2: huh.
3: and that was my only campaign uh, point, uh, really uh, in terms of of seeking to to offer leadership, and and it came. Largely out of the fact that I'd experienced in the church the uh, absolute marginalization of uh, of indigenous elders and indigenous leaders, huh. um, women and men who I'd come to know as uh, as wise and uh, and huh. visionary and spiritual people had never been seen as uh, as having anything to offer to the church. so I went forward because I thought that had to be addressed
2: huh.
3: and uh, as, as i look back now in 1992 that's a a long time ago that's way back when and and if i only knew uh, then what i know now <laughs> i likely would have uh uh tipped a few more canoes uh, <laughs> in that involvement Be- because because the, there were things happening in the church in 1992 that were totally about colonization and about mm-hmm. uh paternalism, you know, it, mm-hmm. so, so I moved into a place and my, my only task in the two years of, uh, of offering leadership, my only task that I felt I could take on directly was that I would no longer stand for uh, what the church called debate, aggressive arguments across across the room between people about, about issues. I, I refused to allow that to be a part of the church's life. Hmm. I indicated that uh, that I desired the church to be uh, faithful and and to work towards consensus, and that is my only agenda uh, for two hmm. years that was really all i uh, hmm. I invited the church to be a part of was uh, a new way of being uh, engaged with each other uh, with respect and uh, hmm. and I think I may have accomplished that, but there were so many other things I should have been uh, thinking about at that time, but uh, I wasn't really ready to to take on.
1: Mm. Stan, uh, the Welsh mythologist Martin Shaw, I don't know if you've um, heard him at all. He's uh, kind of developing a sense of place for, for people who um, maybe ha- haven't had a sense of place for a long time. And He's, very, he's reviving a lot of uh, traditional stories for, for the Welsh people and for um, people in the United Kingdom in general. And uh, he says uh, that few would argue we live in an age of almost tyrannical choice. And I heard you say something uh, to that effect recently, too, uh, that you said, well, we still have too many choices and uh, I would love to hear you just speak more on that because I think it's important.
3: Yes, well, I, I would love to have extended conversation with both of you about uh, my sense of, uh, of a global uh, tendency that was part of the uh, movement of, uh, of settlement into, into various parts of the world out of uh, a feudalistic uh, organization. Of of, uh, of power in in societies, and I think we we've really have been unable as societies to uh, to move away from a concept of uh, of consolidation of power and uh, and authority in uh, in individuals at the cost of uh, of creating great poverty and uh, and inequities, hmm. and and so you know the. The normal line over, over and over again that I hear is that well, democracy is the best that we can do. <laughs> and and uh, when I when I hear, uh, you know, people talk now about uh, uh, the sharing of democracy with the world, uh, really all I see is uh, a sharing of, of rampant capitalism mm-hmm. and injustice uh, uh, as a global context. So, so my response, you know, I I visited briefly in Wales and. Uh, and i know the history of marginalization and, and and poverty in so many of the villages in britain that was a part of the feudalistic uh, developments that uh, often were about extraction of resources and and extraction of uh, of whatever was possible from the poor in order for the rich to to maintain their their power so so i uh, i think the struggle is is large and uh, It is, uh, in many ways, whistling in the wind, to speak of, uh, you know, of of the kinds of liberation and um, and dignity of peoples and diversity, when so much of our of our life is about uh, a kind of cloning and uh, an impoverishment of many, for the benefit of a few. And then, as I say, uh, democracy uh, is often defended by people who say, "This is the best. This is the best." We uh, we have to maintain democracy. But the kind of democracy we maintain is, uh, is a very limiting uh, of many people for the power of a few and the wealth of a few. So, I, you know, I, again, I would say that uh, many indigenous culture societies have found ways to uh, at least address some of those elements of, uh, of marginalization, discounting. People's and uh, and I I often remember as I reflected on on my childhood experience that there was no such thing as unemployment in 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 mm. my village mm. when I was a child. Everyone had something to do. Everyone was significant, and everyone had a place, set a function in in the well-being of the community. And, and I just I long for that kind of sense uh,
2: mm. Mm.
3: as I grow old. <laughs> as i see the uh,
2: mm.
3: the the, the uh, way that uh, diversity is feared and uh, and the various gifts of of people uh, are just discounted uh, because they're not uh, their salary isn't high enough or their power and uh, and authority uh, hasn't expanded enough to make them a significant member of society
0: mm. wow Oh, Stan, um, mm-hmm. we're just so very grateful for, for your sharing time and, and voice with us. Um, I think you articulate stories that we, uh, from a time that we don't have access to and places that, uh, are like the Buffalo, uh, threatened significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we hear from you, uh, an indigenous philosophy that i think as as guests in this land we're only just beginning to understand and scratch the surface of so we're just so very grateful um we we've fallen into the habit of closing with a blessing uh and and i wonder if you would uh allow yourself to undergo a blessing before we uh we close this time
3: okay i, I will do that uh, uh marcus i will uh Sure, and thank you both. So and Marcus, for this time. My, uh, uh... We give thanks, Creator, for the gift of life. For this time of connecting in marvelous technological ways. We ask for your presence in this winter season as the earth rests. We ask only for what we need. And we close this time with thanksgiving. So eni menan, so eni so eni so eni Ego se. Ego se. All right,
0: thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you.
3: Blessings.
5: You'd curl up beside me each night Your sister there with you Your mother, my daughter, close by Under warm covers of fur I'd lay there and dream of the baby you were and the one i teach you to be We'd been pushed to the north where we could be hunters no more We knew nothing of farming anyway the land was too cool just flat rock, Muskegon marsh already half broken by winter so harsh the elders said surely we wait for the end of the creek and then you Broken and lost At last we come back to our ways All stitched out of patchwork and scrap Such disgrace When I might have woven the blanket.
0: ferment you are too thanks for listening
1: until next time breathe consciously and with love
0: eat consciously and with love
1: tend the creation
0: attend the divine
1: and name the real consciously and with love
0: peace and all good